0: This is the In Focus podcast from The Hindu.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Focus podcast. I'm your host Jee Sampath. As Israel continues its indiscriminate bombardment of Gaza, causing thousands of civilian deaths, it has continued to enjoy the unconditional military and political backing from the United States. And last week, as the U.S. vetoed yet another resolution at the United Nations calling for a ceasefire, it found itself almost completely isolated on the world stage. Now, Israel has been the U.S.'s closest ally in the region for a long time. But President Joe Biden seems to be in somewhat uncharted territory in terms of backing Israel, even if it means potentially compromising American interests in the region. A few days ago, he finally said that Israel risks losing international support if it continued to bomb Gaza indiscriminately.
0: We have made it clear to the Israelis and are aware that the safety of
1: innocent Palestinians is still
0: of great concern.
1: Does this statement mean the US is thinking of recalibrating its support for Israel? And what is the rationale dictating the Biden administration's Middle East policy? How is Biden able to square his proclamations about commitments to international humanitarian law in the context of Ukraine with his support for Israel's devastation of Gaza? And with the US launching a ten-nation force to counter attacks by the Houthi rebels in the Red Sea, is it at risk of getting dragged into a wider regional war? We discuss all these questions and more in this episode of In Focus, and we have with us Stanley Johnny, the Hindu's International Affairs Editor. Stanley, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me, Sampath.
1: So, Stanley, I was just wondering uh, on this whole topic of uh, U.S. policy towards Israel. Can you give us a quick historical background? Because it's been it's a very long association. It'll be interesting to know how it has evolved over the years. Uh, since the
0: 1940s? It's been Israel has remained an American ally through and throughout. Even before the State of Israel was created in 1948, we discussed this in our earlier podcast, the United States had offered support for a Jewish homeland in Palestine. So apparently the US Congress had ratified Balfour Declaration in the 1920s uh, and uh, successive American presidents had voiced support for the Zionist movement whose goal was the creation of a separate jewish homeland preferably in palestine that's that's how theodore Hazel put it preferably in palestine uh, so and after you know when the state of israel was created in 1948 may um, the first recognition came from de facto recognition came from the united states and it came in 10 or 11 minutes if i am not mistaken within minutes actually the recognition came from washington Uh, But, you know, the strategic partnership, which we see today, that took shape only in the 1950s, because you see the immediately after the war, you had the Cold War, the early days of the Cold War, where in the case of West Asia, the Soviet Union was trying to reach out to uh, Arab countries, and the United States was very cautious. The United States had excellent ties with Saudi Arabia. But at the same time, in other Arab countries, for example, in Egypt in 1950s, there was this officer's revolution and a socialist president took over in Egypt, Jamal Abdel Nasser. So the Soviets were trying to, you know, uh, exploit the emerging situation in the region. So the United States was very cautious. It didn't want to abandon the Arab world or, you know, let the Soviet Union to come and exploit the situation. But the Suez war in 1956, That changed America's calculus. So basically, the Suez war was launched by Israel with support from France and um, Great Britain without American permission. And the United Eisenhower was very much upset. So was uh, Khrushchev, the Soviet leader. So Khrushchev threatened to fire Soviet rockets into Israel unless Israel pulls back from Sinai Peninsula. And Israel eventually pulled back. But the You know, the American administration also realized Israel's strategic weight after this incident, after the Suez crisis. And ever since Israel has, the United States has strongly supported Israel because the United States saw Israel as a stable, strong, militarily powerful ally in a region where it had very complicated ties. The Americans wanted Israel to balance uh, its relationship with the Arab world. It also wants Israel as a bulwark against the Soviet expansionism in the region. So the Americans continued to see Israel as a strong ally. So this is the strategic rationale behind the United States relationship with Israel. And if you see historically in 1967 during the war, uh, so Israel launched the war in 1967. And the United States stood solidly behind Israel, you know, it delayed the UN Security Council resolutions, and the resolution went through only after Israel defeated all the countries, though Israel managed to do it in six days. And again, in 1973, uh, there was an understanding between the Soviet Union and the United States that they would not support, they would not provide offensive weapons to their respective allies. Uh, So in the case of the Soviet Union, Egypt and Syria, and in the case of the United States, Israel. But... After Israel suffered initial setbacks in the Yom Kippur War, Prime Minister Golda Golda Meir turned to the Americans asking for offensive weapons. And uh, the United States eventually gave in. It sent weapons to Israel and with weapons, with fresh American weapons, the Israelis actually recaptured Sinai Peninsula from the Egyptians. So uh, despite the oil shock, there was this oil shock, there was Egyptian blockade of Red Sea. What Houthis are doing now, is what President Sadat did in the 1973. there, There are very interesting similarities. So throughout these conflicts, the United States has always remained solidly behind Israel, right? And we can see that, you know, that policy is continuing, but this strategic rational ceased to exist after the collapse of the Cold War, which the Americans won, you know? So, but even after, Uh, the end of the Cold War, the United States' relationship with Israel only got strengthened, not weakened. So, irrespective of what Israel is doing, because Israel continues to flout international laws, norms, uh, humanitarian laws, continues the occupation of the Palestinian territories. There is this brutal occupation going on in the West Bank, settler violence, mushrooming settlements, Jewish settlements in in the uh, Palestinian land. But despite whatever Israel is doing, the United States support uh, for Israel, you know, remained solid. So that's what the, I mean, it's like what Meir said, the partnership, you can't find any other two countries so close to each other in modern history, right. uh, like the United States and Israel.
1: Right. Uh, thank you for that, Stanley. Really appreciate uh, the detailed historical uh, context that you've given. So I was just curious to know, I mean, you know Joe Biden when he went to Israel, he said, "I'm a Zionist." You know he's an Irish Catholic saying, "I'm a Zionist in Israel," and that too the context of you know heavy bombardment of uh, Gaza going on, so many civilians dying. So would it be fair to say? when you just mentioned that you know uh, the Cold War has ended, the strategic calculus which uh, which was the foundation for U.S. support that's sort of changed as well. So in this context, you know, uh, the U.S. going as far as it has in in unconditionally supporting uh, Israel, no matter what it does. uh, Would it be fair to say that Biden has gone the furthest compared to other U.S. presidents in this regard? Because we know, for instance, Obama was not at all happy with the expansion of Jewish settlements in the West Bank. You know, Uh, Biden, uh, as a vice president, had to sort of do a lot of work to make sure that he doesn't uh, do anything precipitate. And even Ronald Reagan, for instance, the conservative president, he uh, got Israel to you know pull back from the siege of Beirut, right? I mean, he sort of uh, lived with that. But, but that seems to have all uh, gone. Like Biden seems to have gone beyond every U.S. Uh, president, uh, even uh, most hawkish ones in this regard. Like, is it like something personal to Joe Biden, or is it something uh, reflected across the administration, which, which which seems doubtful to me at least because we saw that around 500 uh, officials from different departments of the US government that signed a petition saying they don't agree with the Biden administration's Israel policy. So is it just Biden we're talking about or is it uh, a section of the American establishment or is it like a well-thought-out American uh, strategic uh, uh, like position reflected uh, uh, in what's happening right now?
0: Yeah, you had dissenting voices coming from the top officials of the Biden administration as well. For example, Lloyd Austin, the Pentagon chief, so he said two weeks ago that Israel uh, might take a tactical victory, but could face a strategic defeat. Austin said different things yesterday when he met the Israeli defense minister. That's a different thing. But in Washington, he said this, that Israel is replacing tactical victory for a strategic defeat. And uh, so, so I mean, I think it's commonsensical to assume that there are uh, differences of opinion Within the Biden administration, but I think President Biden himself remains very pro-Israel. Uh, so I think he is—he has set the policy clear. Uh, you can listen to John Kirby's uh, press conferences, right, uh, to understand how the White House looks at this issue. So Kirby uh, is saying—I mean, he—he—he uh, he, he says it cannot be called a genocide. He says Hamas. Uh, was carrying out a genocide, not Israel. So you you see weird differences coming out of Kirby if you listen to him. So that explains how the White House is looking at the crisis. And comparatively, if you compare Biden administration's policy towards Israel with other US presidents, so I would say that this is by far the most pro-Israel policy uh, of an American president has taken during the time of crisis, during the time of major crisis. Uh, because for example, if you yeah, you talked about Regan, yes, Reagan actually twisted the Israelis to pull back from Beirut in 1982. And in 2002, President George W. Bush, uh, so Bush asked uh, Ariel Sharon to withdraw from uh, uh, you know, uh, West Bank from from a military operation in West Bank without delay. And Sharon attacked uh, Bush calling him, indirectly calling him Chamberlain, saying that Bush is trying to appease the Arabs. And Cornelius Rice had reacted to that forcefully, saying that if the president meant without delay, if the president said without delay, that meant without delay. So they actually forced the Sharon government to pull back from one offensive military operation at the the peak of the second Intifada. And uh, Bush had also allowed several UN Security Council resolutions pass that were critical of Israel. Obama stonewalled a lot of resolutions, but towards the end, even Obama let a resolution go through that asked Israel to freeze all the settlement activities in the West Bank. So you, you look at and President Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter had threatened Israel that he would directly establish a relationship with uh, the PLO if Israel is not ready to discuss the Palestine issue in the Camp David negotiations. And the Israelis actually did. They came up with a framework for peace agreement because both uh, Sadat, Anwar Sadat and uh, President Carter had put pressure on Menachem Begin, who was a right-wing prime minister, who was a liquid prime minister. So successive American presidents had used uh, the pressure tactics because only matter of fact, speaking matter of factly, only the United States can put effective pressure on Israel, nobody else. But you look at Biden administration's policy, right? Immediately after the October 7 attack, Biden himself went there. He embraced Israel's military operation. And it's been, what, eight weeks. 20,000 people were killed in Palestine, a vast majority of the women and children. 90% of Gaza's population have been displaced. 90% of the 2.3 million people. And around fifty to 60,000 people have been wounded. And the whole Gaza Strip has been cut off, fuel, water, medicines, etc. etc. Hospitals are being bombed. So hospitals are being bombed at a time when 60,000 people are wounded. And a vast majority of people who were living in northern Gaza, highly populated, densely populated northern Gaza have been pushed to the south. And they are now living in uh, the UN set up temporary tents. So what is happening in Gaza is an unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe. The UN security, the, the United Nations itself calls, it, calls Gaza a graveyard for children and a living hell for everybody else. So this is an unprecedented crisis. And the Biden administration, which said foreign policy, its foreign policy would be centered around human rights, has not even called for a ceasefire. You look at the, you know, the contradiction. The same Biden administration that built a moral case uh, over Ukraine has not even called for a ceasefire even yesterday, Lloyd Austin was there in Israel and he said the United States continues to support Israel's right to defend itself. This is an unprecedented uh, support for Israel in in, in, in the time of uh, an unprecedented humanitarian crisis.
1: Right, And how do you read uh, Biden's recent public statement at a donor event uh, where he did say that Israel risks losing international support with its quote-unquote indiscriminate bombing campaign. Does this mark Uh, some kind of a shift in thinking uh, in terms of this unconditional support or this is just a statement aimed at uh, maybe appeasing sections of his party or something like that?
0: So, Biden faces heat domestically, definitely, uh, because there are now multiple polls suggesting that uh, the young democratic voters are so angry with Biden's handling of the crisis. His core voters are now moving away. Uh, So that's there, So uh, and also even Democratic, the left flank of the Democratic Party, they are also continuously attacking Biden. So he has raised this criticism, I mean, publicly he said that Israel risks losing international support. Basically, Israel doesn't enjoy any international support, you know, the support Israel is getting is from the United States, France and some other and the United Kingdom, some other Western countries. That's it.
1: It's the one renowned member of NATO to support US Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: So that's what Biden is insinuating, that Israel risks losing the support of these countries, but that doesn't reflect on an actual policy, because I think it was after Biden's statement that in the UN General Assembly, the United States again voted against the call for a ceasefire. And definitely yesterday's uh, uh, Lloyd Austin's statement from Israel suggests that I mean they have also announced more weapons to israel you no know, without any without asking for any uh, condition without setting any conditions without asking uh, Israel to do anything so basically you know its policy hasn't changed uh, if the United States wants to exert pressure on Israel it can actually it can ask Israel you know uh, to change the course of the war or stop the fighting uh, start talks. Etc. cetera, et cetera. It can say that more sub, more supply of weapons are tied to some conditions. This is what Reagan did in 1982, but Biden is still not ready to do it. So I think the, the public uh, criticism he raised was only aimed at uh, you know appealing to his domestic political constituencies because overall even yesterday's New York Times poll suggests that 57% of American voters disapprove of Biden's handling of the crisis. And uh, his approval rating has now tanked to what, 34%, I think, or 37%, from 39 in July, it's now tanked to 37%. So he is a hugely unpopular president. And the vast majority of American voters disapprove of his handling of the crisis. So he is now trying to appeal to his domestic constituencies, but that doesn't reflect in actual policy, not yet. We don't know whether he would change the course tomorrow, but not yet.
1: Right. I mean, I think it's also uh, maybe pertinent to mention here that Joe Biden is, I think, uh, the uh, largest, if not one of the largest recipients of uh, donations, uh, campaign contributions from the Israel lobby. Uh, in the history of uh, the United States, I think that's, that's an important point as well. Now, even going back to the, the contrast, uh, the comparison between you, you made between uh, Biden and Reagan, Stanley, I was just wondering, I mean, generally, the I mean, especially within, say, liberal debating spaces, uh, the Republicans are portrayed as more right-wing, hawkish, you know, whatever, uh, veering towards uh, extreme solutions and so on. But we have seen time and again that uh, Democrat presidents have been more... Uh, Uh, more sort of friendly to war making. And in this context, uh, what is the position of the Republicans in the US uh, towards uh, Israel right now? Because one sees reports which say that some of them believe the US is soft on Israel. I don't know what that means exactly. So can you explain what is the difference between the Democrats and the Republicans positioning vis-a-vis the US, US policy towards Israel right now?
0: No, uh, when it comes to Israel, I don't see an actual difference between the positions taken by both parties, at least when they are in power. So the only difference you can see was when Jimmy Carter was in power, Carter actually put pressure on the Israelis. So he went a step further uh, to, to actually put pressure on the Israelis. Israel's right-wing government to get the framework for peace agreement done, which became kind of a blueprint for the Oslo process. So when Israel agreed to sign the Oslo process, at least the Israelis had a left-leaning prime minister in Israel. And the world was also changing at that time, in the 1990s. Soviet Union was gone, You know, a whole lot of new countries were born, and Israel was also under pressure. So the Israelis were willing to have a new... And it, there was first Intifada happening inside the Palestinian territories. So Israelis were also open to the idea of having talks with the Palestinians in the 1990s. In 1970, late 1970s, that was not the case. Actually, President Carter arm-twisted the Israelis... To recognize the Palestinian aspirations for national sovereignty, and Menachem Begin did that, you know. So, except Carter, I don't see any major difference whether it is a Democratic president or a Republican president. And if you look at the current Republican Party, so again, I don't see any any major. They might be, you know, playing. They they might be playing the tactical card. For example, when Trump, in an interview, was asked uh, about the chances for a peace, and Trump said that. He, I thought that he thought the Israelis were ready for a deal, but no, they were not. The Israelis were not ready for a deal. On the other side, Trump was saying that I met Mohamed Abbas, the Palestinian uh, Authority president, uh, and he was okay for a deal, but the Israelis were not. So they were, maybe I think they see that Biden is under a lot of pressure. They see that Biden's core voters are turning away. So they are now they are not in power. They are trying to be tactical now. Uh, but if you look at the Republican establishment, they are overtly pro-Israel. Some even attack Biden of not taking enough uh, strong position. So, and the Democrats might speak a different language, but once they are in power, they are also very much pro-Israel. So, you talked about the lobby. If you look at IPAC contributions, IPAC uh, in the last election contributed more for the Democrats. Of the $35 billion, I think a vast majority of it went to... Uh, the Democrats, I think, if I am not mistaken. so Which means the Biden Biden team. Uh, So the lobby has influence on both parties. And and, and in the case of Republicans, the evangelical Christians who vote for uh, the Republicans, they are ideologically committed to uh, the state of Israel. They support the state of Israel. Even when the liberal Jews in the United States are critical of Israel's foreign policy, uh, the evangelical Christians are for, you know, whatever Israel is doing, they support Israel and they support the Republican Party. So, I think when it comes to the question of Israel, both parties, once they are in power, they are pro-Israel.
1: Right. I mean, you, you mentioned about, you know, the evangelical Christians' support. I think it's also I think pertinent to mention that there have been so many different Jewish groups in the U.S. Uh, that have protested against uh, Israel's bombing of Gaza, they have protested against the Biden administration, and they've been willing to sort of you know, go to jail for, for, these, for this reason, for justice. I think that's very interesting as well. Now, coming back again to the core question of uh, you know, the, the consequences of U.S.'s unconditional support uh, for Israel here. Now, uh, we see that the Houthis of Yemen have been attacking commercial shipping and U.S. military vessels in the Red Sea uh, as as a, as a protest against what, what its support of uh, Israel and supplying weapons to Israel. And the U.S. now has announced a 10-nation force to protect uh, shipping in the Red Sea and you know, to counter the houthi uh, rebels' attacks. So this could lead to a confrontation possibly. And uh, is the U.S. at risk of getting drawn into a wider war in the region uh, because of uh, no, this? other presidents have avoided getting drawn into. We know that uh, Trump, for instance, avoided uh, taking on Iran and despite all the noise he made. Obama, too, he went and did a a nuclear deal with Iran when he was under pressure from the uh, the Israelis to sort of uh, take on Iran militarily. But uh, with this particular kind of a scenario on Gaza and the US uh, uh, in a confrontation with the Saudi rebels, which are uh, also proxies for Iran, is there a regional war happening and U.S. getting drawn into it. Is that a scenario you foresee?
0: First of all, about the consequences of American policy, I think the United States is in a very difficult situation here because uh, you see the task force they have set up. Not a single Red Sea country is a member of the task force. Britain has announced to send uh, the Royal Navy. Australia has announced to boost its presence, uh, you know. And uh, Spain has said that it would support the task force, et cetera, et cetera. But not Saudi Arabia, not Jordan, not Egypt. Egypt is actually being hit by the Houthi attacks because the Houthi attacks, because of the Houthi attacks, the Red Sea traffic has fallen by 35%, which means Egypt, which is already uh, reeling under high debt. Egypt will see a major fall in its foreign currency earning. But even Egypt hasn't joined the task force. And Saudi Arabia, which, had been fighting the Houthis since 2015 for six, seven years. Now there is a ceasefire. The Saudis stayed out of it. So this shows the anger in the Arab world to the United States. And you can also see when the Arabs formed a committee to explore a solution for the Palestinian question. The first country they visited was China and they came to India. You know, that also shows they are, they are trying to send a message to the Americans. See how President Putin was welcomed in the UAE and Saudi Arabia when he visited the country. So this President Putin, Putin is the president of the United States has tried to demonize over the last two years, right? Trying to build a case there is an international arrest warrant against him for war crimes and see how he was welcomed in the UAE. So the Arab countries are very much pretty much upset, but they can't do much about it because the United States has a very strong military presence in all these countries. So Bahrain is the only country, Arab country, I think that is part of the naval task force and bahrain doesn't have any other option right this is a naval task force and the united states fifth fleet is based in bahrain it can't actually stay out of it so bahrain is part of that but in the arab world there is groundswell of anger towards a biden administration's policy towards this towards uh, uh, israel towards the israel towards israel's war on gaza that's one thing secondly um, you know you asked about whether the united states would be dragged into uh, 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 drawn into a uh, uh, larger crisis. So actually the crisis is escalating because the Houthis initially they thought that the Houthis are only issuing threats. But you know they when they started attacking ships going through Red Sea uh, so it became a major economic nightmare now for Israel, for Egypt and for others also because this will uh, fi- at least five global shipping giants had suspended operations to the Red Sea so they will have to take the circuitous route around Africa uh, to uh, reach Europe in waters. So which means shipping costs will go up, insurance costs will go up. So this is a major disruptor for global supply, global trade. So uh, what the United States can do here, this is the question. Arab countries are not cooperating with the United States' effort to set up the naval force. But the United States has a strong naval presence in, uh, uh, you know, in the waters. Uh, but the Problem is that, what can they do? You know, one is to intercept the Houthi attacks. That is one thing. Second is to bomb the Houthi positions. Third is to launch a ground invasion. I think the United States would not do the third option. It doesn't want to launch a ground invasion in Yemen, which would be disastrous. And the second option is to, offensive option is to start bombing Houthi positions. But the Houthi survived the Saudi bombing for seven years. And, the, and and Saudi Arabia is just across the border. And the repeated Saudi bombing failed to dislodge Houthis from power and they only became stronger over the course of the last seven years. And Iran always finds a way to continue to supply weapons to the Houthis. Now they have drones, so, and they have uh, missiles, they have ballistic missiles. They don't have any naval presence, though. So they can't impose a blockade on Red Sea like Sadat did in the 1970s but their strategy is rooted in sea denial. So they can use their drones and missiles to deny the naval route to other ships, which is what they are trying to do now. So America, okay, they can intercept Houthi attacks, which they've been trying to do, but beyond that, they don't have any practical options before them. So this is a very tricky situation. While at the same time, Houthis are actually escalating the conflict, turning the Red Sea into a battleground. So what they wanted, the Houthis wanted, is to put pressure on Israel indirectly to stop the Gaza operations. Uh, so I don't see a possibility of the United States being drawn into an actual war in Yemen. But the United States would try to, you know, uh, maximize its presence and its allies' presence in the waters and try would try to intercept the Houthi attacks to make the waters safe. But it is, it is that even that is not going to be easy for them
1: right uh yeah that i think is a quite uh, tricky situation for the us uh here i think uh, the three options you outlined you know bombing versus ground invasion versus intercepting i think none of them is going to really uh solve the problem which is you know viability of commercial traffic in the red sea and i think there is uh, a line of escalation which is open here
0: uh one, yeah, last point, one yeah. more thing Sambath, just to add to this when the war began on october 7 Many people thought that it would be Hezbollah that would escalate the conflict. Because Hezbollah is an Iranian proxy. Houthis are also called an Iranian proxy. And if Hezbollah escalated the conflict, Israel could have started an all-out attack on Hezbollah. just across the border. Israelis did it in 2006. So that's what many, many people thought. But the surprise angle was that it was Houthis who escalated the conflict. This is some... Roughly 2,000 kilometers from Israel's coast, Israel cannot invade, and you know, Israel cannot start a, an all-out war against the Houthis, which is across the Red Sea. And this this has put, I mean, whoever has taken the decision, whether it is the Iranians or Houthis themselves, but the decision to activate the Houthis to escalate the conflict has actually put the United States in a spot instead of Israel.
1: Right, I think that's a very, uh, very, very important distinction here, and the, UN, the United States is under a lot of pressure because a lot of these big companies involved in trade are uh, are companies which are American or with large American shareholders. Uh, that's an interesting point as well. One last question, Stanley, before we uh, wrap up, we're running out of time. Uh, Biden uh, has also expressed concern, uh, according to news reports, over the lack of a clear end game. Uh, in Gaza, as in Israel's end game in Gaza, I mean, you go on bombing. Uh, your objective is to destroy Hamas. And when would you know that you have destroyed Hamas? Uh, and uh, and what happens once you destroy Hamas? Like, what is the end game? And what kind of an end game would Biden be happy with? I mean, you destroy Hamas and everybody goes home. Like, what exactly are they talking about here? Uh,
0: from Blinken's statements, I think what the Biden administration wants is that the Palestinian authority of Mohammed Abbas to take over Gaza once the war is over. So this is their proposal, but Netanyahu has repeatedly shot that down. Netanyahu says no, he won't accept even the Palestinian authority in Gaza. And Israel's president the other day said that, uh, Herzog said that, uh, uh, we want to, we intend to take over the whole of Gaza. And Netanyahu had also earlier said that Israel's military would continue to play a role in Gaza. So, you know, actually there is no end game. I think Israel wants to take over the whole of Gaza, but even then, the question is what comes next? If Israel, Israel has already destroyed parts of Gaza, and Israel might want to push the Palestinians out of Gaza into Egypt, Sinai Peninsula, so that less number of people, Israel might be thinking that they can manage whatever. But the Egyptian president has clearly said that he would not allow that to happen, Sisi. He said that he would not be complacent with any Israeli policy uh, of mass eviction of the Palestinians. Uh, so actually, you know, there is no clarity. And also with regard to dismantling Hamas, uh, the question is how are they going to dismantle Hamas after seven, eight weeks of bombing they haven't even taken down Hamas's command structure. Hamas's top leaders are still alive. They called Mahmoud uh, uh, Deif, and uh, uh, the Israelis said Mahmoud Deif and Yahya Sinwar are dead men walking, and they are still walking, right? So uh, it's very difficult to, you know, judge Israel's success in this military operation. And Hamas is not ISIS, as Israel keeps saying. Hamas is ISIS. ISIS was an outgrowth of Al Qaeda. ISIS didn't have any social roots. And it was the Muslim armies that defeated ISIS. You look at the Kurds, Iranians, the Syrians, Uh, and the Russians and the Americans only provided air cover. Uh, uh, But Hamas is rooted in Palestinian society and they have a social cause. They have a political cause, which is the liberation of the Palestinian territories from Israel's occupation. So as long as the occupation continues, Hamas would survive in one form or the other, irrespective of whether Israel takes a military victory so israel has set lofty targets for itself and it is now struggling to achieve those targets and i don't think that anybody has any idea about what an end game could be or what could be a post war gaza situation is
1: right i think uh, from what you're saying stanley it does look like uh, the end game if any is uh, to make the occupation a permanent one which of course is is not going to be easy at all as long as there are 2.3 million uh, uh, palestinians living in gaza and which is where uh, there is uh, there have been efforts to sort of evict them uh, push the north uh, to the south i mean residents of the north to the south and then you know uh, to egypt and so on but again the end game is not clear and in the meantime the us's position is getting uh, more and more difficult uh, with its uh, publicly avowed support unconditional support for israel regardless of uh, uh, its uh, going ahead with with bombing, campaign, military conflict, without any uh, kind of restraint or uh, red lines or humanitarian concerns. Thank you so much, Stanley, for uh, joining us once again with your thoughts and observations on this uh, Middle East conflict. Pleasure talking to you.
0: Thanks, Sambath. Pleasure. In Focus will be back soon with
1: analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify,